We are going to be reading the scripture today in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9. My name is Pat Husky, and it is my privilege to serve the women here at FBC as Director of Women's Ministry, but it's our greater privilege to read from God's Word. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought against him to, that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be the manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil, and he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, Make friends for yourselves by the means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. This is the word of God. Be seated. Thank you. Good morning. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the joy it is to know you through Jesus. We pray, Lord, as we take a few moments today to... Allow your word by your spirit to do a work on our hearts that you would transform us and make us like our Savior Jesus. Bring us to a place where we are willing to repent and believe. We pray, God, that you would bear fruit in our lives for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Life today in the kingdom to come. Life today in the kingdom to come. That's the uh, title of the message today. I think it's in your uh, worship folder. And if you'd like to take notes, there's a spot there to take notes. We're looking at this parable along with a few verses after the parable and thinking about what does it mean knowing there is a kingdom to come. Jesus' kingdom will someday uh, rule and reign in all its glory. It, it isn't yet. What does it mean to live today in light of the fact that there is a kingdom to come? Life today in the kingdom to come. And we, we understand how this works to some degree if you've ever planned for a trip. Uh, in advance of the trip, you'll, you'll book your airline tickets and your hotel and your um, tickets to whatever entertainment venues you're going to go to on the trip. So you, you plan in advance. You, you, you buy the stuff. Usually you have to pay for it even in, in advance. And then there's some time between when you buy those tickets and when you actually go on the trip. You know, it, unless you're one of those people that just show up to the airport and go on a trip. And that's fine. Knock yourself out. But you buy this. So what do you do in the meantime? You, you bought your tickets to uh, the place you want to go, and you got the, your, your airline and your hotel and the places you want to visit while you're there. What do you do in the meantime? Well, you, you kind of keep in mind that you have a trip coming up. You might ask for time off. That might be a good idea if you work. You, you might pack at some point. You might throw something into a suitcase. There might be things you would do uh, in order to be ready to enjoy the trip for the most you could. Maybe if you're going to be walking a lot, you'll... You'll get out and stretch your legs a little more than you're used to, that you might be ready physically to enjoy all the places you're going to go. Or maybe if you're concerned about getting sick, there's nothing worse than the day before your trip, all of a sudden you catch a cold or something. So maybe in advance of the trip, you uh, get more sleep than you normally do. You know, get extra rest, take some vitamin C or airborne, and, and maybe there's some sickly people in your life you avoid. <laughs> like the plague, as it were, I guess. So you, what you do is you think, okay, I got this trip coming up. I should, I should, I should think about that in, in, as the weeks approach that. And what Jesus wants us to do when talking about this parable of this uh, manager is he wants us to look at our life now in the same way. We have a sort of a trip we're going on to the kingdom. And he wants us to consider what does it mean to live today to maximize the benefits of that place. So in, in, in advance of going, what do we think about? Our life today... Jesus is going to argue, really should be focused on maximizing the blessing that will be experienced in the eternal kingdom of Jesus. Life today, in the kingdom that is to come, 
Jesus is going to call us to focus our life and our attention on maximizing the blessing we'll experience in the eternal kingdom. And he's going to challenge us a little bit and say, uh, short-term pursuits, that is, pursuits that limit their benefits to this life alone, can be, at best, a distraction. At worst, they can be dangerous. So let's look at this parable Pat read for us, the parable of the dishonest manager. So there was a wealthy man, and he had an estate. This was very common for a wealthy person to have an estate that would also entail having a manager or a steward who would be over that estate. We see that in the Old Testament. You see the king of Egypt had a steward. His name was Joseph, second in command. The king of Egypt really did nothing while Joseph did all the heavy lifting. He was the steward for the kingdom and experienced God's blessing. Abraham also had a chief servant that functioned as a steward. His name was Eleazar. And in fact, he was so important in his household that Abraham had some concern that Eleazar would end up inheriting his estate and complain to God about it. And God said, don't worry about it. You're going to have a kid, and so will your old wife, too. <laughs> Meaning not Hagar. And so we see this. So there's a, a wealthy estate, and a, and a steward is brought in. And this estate is, as you would expect during this time frame, an agricultural-based estate. I don't know if... This particular estate manufactured olive oil or grain, or if he purchased it and would resell it as a way of servicing debt. But that's what would happen, is this person was trading to some degree, either produce that he made or produce that he purchased. And his steward was in charge of managing who owed what to who and when and how. And that was sort of the job. And, and some charges were leveled against this guy. It was brought to the attention of the estate that the man was wasting his possessions. And this was not merely incompetence. What's clearly being insinuated is this man was taking a little off the top, keeping a little for himself. You can imagine this would be very, very simple to do. He's dealing with another person who's buying and selling olive oil. And he says, listen, because he has some discretion in the pricing that he might set, I'm going to sell it to you for a little bit less, but you pay the full amount. I'm going to keep a little bit. And he comes up with a deal that benefits the buyer and benefits the servant, but takes a little bit from the owner. And this comes to the attention of the owner that somehow this servant is keeping a little bit on the side. And the owner says to him that one thing that managers want to hear least, show me the books. Let's take a look at, at the Excel spreadsheet. Let's open up QuickBooks and see what those have to say. And then he goes, oh, the files got corrupted. I don't, yeah, that's what... What is this I hear about you? You're going to have to give an account of your management. And the, and the manager, he knows the gig is up. He knows it's, it's over for him. Because he's going to have to give an account. And the way that the, the owner talks to the manager, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. You can no longer be my manager. It's clear he knows what's said is true. The, man, the, the owner is coming to the manager and says, why don't you and I sit down and look at the books and you and I both know what we're going to find there. And the manager doesn't argue. You notice that. He doesn't argue. He, he, he knows that his time with this owner uh, is up. And so the manager scurries to protect his own interests. He, he does some behind-the-scenes work in an effort to preserve his own well-being. So what he does is he, he thinks about his situation. He's a manager of a household, meaning he's not one that's given to manual labor. If you shook his hands, he would have nice, soft hands. And he says to himself, I'm not strong enough to dig. He's an honest guy. If he's going to be fired from this guy, what are the chances he's going to be able to get a job managing somebody else's estate? Zero. His reputation is going to be ruined. He's not going to be able to get a job as an asset manager any longer. So he says, well, I, I, I'm, I'm not strong enough to dig. Why would you have to dig? Well, you've got to dig lots of stuff in an agricultural Society, He might be uh, sent out into the field to plow, to, to ready the land, to receive the seed. He might be sent out to take stones out of the ground. A field, in order to be reclaimed, would have to have all the stones removed so they could properly generate a return for the owner. It might be that irrigation canals would need to be dug. Worse yet, there might need to be holes dug to dispose of waste material that a home might generate. As you know, there's not indoor plumbing in the homes. So there's all kinds of reasons this guy doesn't want to dig. He's used to what we might call inside work. 
It gets worse. He said, I'm ashamed to beg. He's got, he's got a big, important job in this, this community. He is working, after all, for an important, wealthy individual. And now, all of a sudden, he's going to be sitting at the intersection of a road with a cardboard sign. And he says, I can't do it. I've got a reputation here. I can't be that guy. There is no way. That is too far below me. I will starve. His arrogance, of course, is evident. But he's found himself in a pickle. He wants to figure out, my situation here has become temporary. I need to figure out, what do I do in this temporary situation that clearly is ending to maximize the benefit I have in the situation that's coming up that I don't know much about? So what does he do? He calls in the debtors to talk to him. So he calls someone in that owes some oil, probably olive oil would be our guess, and he owes 100 measures. That would be a very large amount of olive oil. This person owes what would amount to uh, require years and years and years of labor to pay the price to incur this kind of debt. And he said, how much do you owe? 100 measures of olive oil. And he said, take your bill down, uh, make it into 50. That's a 50% discount. All right, good. So then another person is called in and he owes 100 measures of wheat. He doesn't get quite the same level of discount. He gets a 20% discount. He says, quickly take your bill and write down 80. It's still a pretty good discount on the debt that he owed. And you might be thinking, well, why does this guy get to do this? That seems kind of shifty, dishonest manager. Now here's the thing. He had learned that he had been uh, accused of mishandling assets and now he is trying to generate with other people within the community a warm feelings towards him so that after his job ends, he has people who will help him uh, meet, meet his needs. And what he's doing here is not necessarily bad. Here's, maybe I'll give you three reasons why what he's doing isn't bad at all. He's already been dishonest. I might suggest he needs to do things different and he understands he's gonna do things differently. I don't think what he's doing with this bill is dishonest. Are you ready for the three reasons? First off, he's the manager. He may have discretion to give discounts at his, uh, when he thinks so. Why would uh, the owner of the estate give the manager authority to give discounts to debt? Because it's better to collect half a debt than no debt. And so it may very well be that the owner has given him discretion to discount debt in order to at least collect some of the debt. So he could be operating within his authority to discount the debt. But there's a couple other reasons that might even be better reasons. It could be that this owner was charging interest on the debts, significant interest, 100% interest on the olive oil debt, and a 20% interest rate on the, the weed debt. So it very well could be that the manager has called the people in and has said, you only have to pay back that which you borrowed and not the interest on what you have borrowed. Why would that be a significant uh, detail? Because in the Old Testament law, the people of Israel were not allowed to charge interest on their debts. So he's calling people in and he's saying, look, I have found God. I don't know if my master has, but I have. And I don't think it's right that we're charging you interest because the law tells us we shouldn't charge you interest. So therefore I'm cutting the interest off your bill and so make your bill just the principal, just the amount you borrow, which was significant for the oil uh, debtor and relatively significant for the wheat debtor. There's one other reason he might have reduced the debt that would have been uh, ethical. It very well could be that his master was paying him a commission based on debts that he was able to obtain. And all he was doing was calling the customers in and eliminating his portion of their debt and saying, listen, when you borrowed that, half of that is going to me. I'm cutting out the part I was gonna get. Uh, the part that would, my commission for landing this sale, I'm going to eliminate this commission. Try this when you go to the used car lot. <laughs> Don't try this. That just would be rude. Guy's got to make a living. Right? So he, he's cutting out his commission, and the person knows it. And this would, this would lend us a little bit of understanding as to why he would think this would generate goodwill in the community. This person, when he loses his job, goes, oh, man, he, he eliminated his commission. Now he's got no job, and it benefited me immensely. I, I feel some duty to help provide for this guy who's lost his, his gig. So there's a number of things that might have been going on. Jesus doesn't provide the details in the parable. But what we do know is by reducing these debts, he wasn't doing anything unethical. How do we know that? 
Because the owner agrees. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, some have argued that the master commended him because basically he's a mob boss. You know, basically the, the, the master is evil. And so he says, well played, touche on you. That's not what's happening here. Jesus tells lots of cool stories. He's not telling that kind of story. The, the master recognizes that what the, the manager did, number one, benefited the master because he was going to get his debts repaid. But he also could tell that what the manager did helped ensure the benefit the, ma the manager would experience after his job ends. The, the parallel we need to understand is the, the manager has a life that he knows is temporary. His job is ending. And everything he knows is true is going to end. And he's trying to figure out in, in that temporary situation, how do I maximize my benefit into an unknown future? How, what do I need to do now? And he's scrambling. He's hustling. And this is the question the believers need to be asking ourselves. Life today in a kingdom to come. Is this life temporary? Not sure on that one? <laughs> this is very temporary. It's way short. This life is temporary and we're going into an unknown future. If we're in Christ, we know that future is the kingdom of God. But I haven't seen the, the blueprints I don't know exactly what that looks like. And all that this manager shows us is if you're knowing you're in a temporary situation where everything here is just temporary, what does it look like to do whatever it takes to maximize this unknown future? The benefit in that time since everything here is, is going away. Look what Jesus has to say about it. Verse 9. I tell you, Jesus tells us exactly how to apply it. Make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, you may receive, be, uh, excuse me, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Verse 9. Let me, let's cover one thing here that, uh, that you may have missed or you're ignoring on purpose. <laughs> wealth always fails. I don't have anything else to say about that. I mean, I, I don't even know how to make it more clear. Uh, wealth, so let me read it again in case I misread it. When it fails, I was just making sure it didn't say if. I wanted to make sure that I didn't read that. If, if it fails, okay, good. Well, I'm going to be the one guy where it does it. When it fails, uh, wealth always fails. I don't know when it's going to fail. It, it could fail next week. We see that happen from time to time when the economy really tanks. All of a sudden, wealth can fail, and everything that was is no longer, and now you're scrambling. Or you may have your wealth last until the very, very end. Right? What's that famous quip by one uh, businessman? I want to spend my last dollar on my last day. Right? That would be much easier to do if you knew when the last day was. Wealth always fails. So the question is, is it going to fail before I move from this life to the next? Or... Am I going to move to this life to the next, convinced that my wealth will help me out there? Wealth always fails. So what Jesus is calling us to do is to simply be wise. He's saying, be sure to use the resources we have, our time, our energy, our skills, our intellect, our capacity, our physical resources, our relationships, our influence, all of the resources that God gives us as individuals. He says, think like this manager. Think. Pay attention. Doesn't it make sense if you know everything is temporary to do whatever you can to maximize the benefit you will gain in the unknown future? He's not asking us to do something that doesn't make sense. He's asking us to think reasonably. Does it make more sense to maximize your experience during that which is temporary or to maximize your benefit when things are permanent? That's what he's calling us to do is to properly value the best time to have the most stuff. The best time to have the most stuff is in the unknown future where everything lasts. The worst asset in heaven never breaks. The worst thing, I'm trying to think of what the worst thing you could have in heaven. A mop bucket. <laughs> what are you gonna do with a mop bucket in heaven? Doesn't it stay pretty much clean? Aren't we hoping it does, it stays pretty much clean? Some of you go, no, I wanna clean, I love cleaning. It's never going to break. The worst thing in heaven, like the lowest 
thing no one cares about, everybody has a hundred of them, it never breaks. The best asset on planet Earth is gonna break. The best thing you could buy, I don't know what you could imagine you could buy that for you is the best thing. Maybe it's like a hundred foot yacht. They have people, it's their full-time job to keep that thing fixed. Because there's so many parts on that thing. They're always breaking. The best thing you could buy. There's an entire field somewhere out in, it's Utah or Arizona where they have a, real, a lot of real estate no one cares about. It's nothing but used up, broke down Air Force bombers. Now my understanding is, I'm not sure, but those things cost a couple of bucks to make. <laughs> like billions, yeah? And they're, and they're broken at a certain point. The best thing here just falls apart. Everything's falling apart. In heaven, the worst thing you could have, I get a mop bucket, it never breaks. They, it lasts forever. That's what the Bible tells us. And all Jesus is saying is, if you could take something and, cha- and exchange it from will be certain to break and turn that into something that will never go away, does that seem smart to you? That's all he's saying. It's not complicated. You just don't like it. And neither do I. Let's be honest. I like fun stuff. I like shiny stuff. We all do. Wealth, uh, verse 9, write it down. Wealth always fails. Be sure to use it in the most effective way. The most effective way to use the resources we have, not merely money, time, energy, relationships, influence, connections, intellect, is to use the resources we have to maximize our enjoyment of a kingdom that will last forever. The primary value of the kingdom of God as it comes to resources, the primary means to change that which is temporary into that which is permanent is generosity towards others. And that's what we see in the servant. This is what we see all the way through the, through the book of Luke. Is an, the concept of being Christ-like in saying, it's not mine, it's primarily for the benefit of the people uh, around me. Okay, let's look at verses 10, 11, and 12. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much, Jesus says. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. You will either... Uh, hate the one or love the other. He will be devoted to the one or despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Lesser to greater. You cannot be expected to be trusted with true wealth if you cannot handle lame wealth. If you have a kid who is learning to drive and you give him an old rundown Camry and, and he's forever hitting mailboxes and treats, you are not going to buy that kid a Maserati. You, you get the Camry between the lines, and we'll talk about maybe upgrading to a little bit nicer car. You keep doing to the Camry what you're doing, I'm going to get you a really nice bicycle. <laughs> That's where this goes. That's all Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, you've got a little bit of wealth here. I don't care how much you have. You've got $3, you've got two nickels you can rub together. You've got enough to, to care for people all around the world. doesn't matter. However much you've got, he says, you've got a little bit. Good for you. I made... We might say it this way for Jesus. He said, I made it all. I kind of owed it all. So you got a couple of bucks. Good for you. And so you, you've got a little bit here. Congratulations. You, you scraped together a little bit of pile of money. If you can't be trusted to handle that in view of the kingdom of God, why in the world when you show up in the kingdom do you think I'm going to give you a pile of money there? That's all he's saying. And, and you're saying, I can tell from the look on your face. Well, that's kind of rude. Hey, take it up with him, bro. This isn't me. He's, he's just saying, listen, I'm going to give you a little bit here. Now, we, we think of a little bit. We compare our little bit to somebody else's lot of bits. So we think they have a lot of bit, and we got a little bit. And Jesus said, no, y'all got a little bit. And you take whatever he's given you here, and he's saying, I, I want to see, what do you do with this little bit that, that goes away, that, that fails? It's always breaking and slowly rusts and turns into nothing. And, and if you want me to give you a, a significant responsibility in the kingdom of heaven, then you're going to have to use your little bit in a way that generates and recognizes Jesus' kingdom values, which is a mind toward 
the spread of the gospel and a love for my fellow man and, and a heart towards helping those who can't help themselves. Verse 13, he says it most clearly. No one can serve two masters. You will either hate the one or love the other. Devoted to one and despise the other, you cannot serve God in money. And most of us say, well, thank the Lord I don't serve money. Here we go. <laughs> if you must have something, it controls you. You do not control it. If you must have something, you are not in control of that something. If you must have it, we've all said it. We're watching, watching the TV or the Hulu or whatever, and the television, uh, the advertisement comes on, and you go, oh, I've got to have one of those. I have, find, I have found happiness. And this advertising executive was kind enough to bring it to my attention. Thank you. I should send him a note. If you must have something, it controls you. You don't have it. You aren't seeking it. It owns you. Now, we tend to put into that category things that are discretionary or things not required for life. Jesus doesn't divide between needs and wants. Okay, so now we get rude. Because if you say, like all of us say, I must have health to be happy, you're not serving your health. It now owns you. If I must have a certain kind of job, a certain kind of family, a certain kind of church, a certain kind of country or community... You are not now serving those things. That thing now owns you because you must have it. A person who is kingdom-minded holds loosely to all things we might seek in this world because the kingdom that's permanent is coming. It's not here permanently yet. Just to be reminded of this, the opposite of greed is not poverty. We can be greedy and impoverished. Those, do not, uh, those two statements don't measure the same thing. Uh, the, the word greed is an assessment of the condition of my heart. The word poverty is an assessment of the condition of my bank account. The opposite of greed is not poverty. The opposite of greed is generosity. The epistle says it most clearly. Those of you who steal ought to stop stealing and instead work that you might help others. Jesus' prayer that he teaches to his disciples says, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. The question we have to ask about resources from this parable, are we kingdom come kind of people or are we I like the kingdom I have here kind of people? Because people who like the kingdom they have here will act as though this is the only kingdom they ever have. People who are kingdom come kind of people recognize my job today is to figure out how to maximize my benefit into an unknown future. Life in the kingdom to come. Plan for the future. Let's finish up with these last few verses. And if you thought these were offensive and hard to take, we have not yet begun. <laughs> Life today in the kingdom to come. The world is upside down. One author has said it this way. We often assume the kingdom of God is upside down. And we're trying to orient ourselves to it. That's not true. Kingdom of God is the way it's supposed to be. The world is upside down. I wanted to give you some recipes for the upcoming Harvest festival season. I say that because I don't know if I'm allowed to say Halloween in this church. You know, y'all know what I'm talking about. Yeah, somebody, somebody just left. There you go. Are you ready? Here's some things. You got balloon cake. You know what balloon cake is? You make somebody a cake, you put an inflated balloon in it, and then when they cut into it, boom. That's a fun cake. Here's another one. Take some Oreos, open those suckers up, and take out that delicious cream filling and refill them with toothpaste that's the same color. <laughs> Put those on a plate, tall glass of Elmer's glue next to it. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> now people are taking notes. <laughs> You've heard of these others. How about you take a popsicle stick and cram that thing into a delicious walla walla onion and dip that into a thing of caramel. Get it nicely covered. Place that on some plates and then tell your unsuspecting child, you should enjoy yourself a delicious caramel apple. Last one, same concept, but instead of 
caramel uh, onions, you are making cake pops. What you do with cake pops, you take little uh, um, lollipop sticks and you put those in the brownies, kind of batter, and you dip that in milk. But omit the brownie, and, and I'm going to give you discretion on this one to let your creativity flow. Either cooked or uncooked Brussels sprouts <laughs> onto the stick. Shannon likes this. This is nice. Okay, I would, I would roast the Brussels sprouts. I think that's going to bring out the bitterness uh, of the Brussels, and, uh, and just a little, that smoke is going to be nice with the chocolate you're going to cover that in, and then hand that to, they say, I was, I was running through, through the coffee stand, and I bought some cake pops. Enjoy. That is ridiculous. This is exactly what the world does to us all day and every day. I got something for you. I got something for you. And we, we hook, line, and sinker. Hook, line, the world is upside down and it's telling us over and over again, if you just get this, if you just, and, and we pick up that cake pop, we bite into it, oh, another Brussels sprout. And so then we learned our lesson. And so we go along for a little while and then all of a sudden another one pops up. No, this one's different. The world would never give me two Brussels sprout pops in a row. <laughs> The world tells us over and over, get security, get significance, enjoy pleasure, enjoy leisure. Our, our satisfaction should be our primary pursuit. God says this is backward and upside down. He says your satisfaction will be find, found in pursuing him and him alone. Look at verse 14. The Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and ridiculed him and said to him, you are those who... He said to them, I should say, you are those who justify yourselves before men. God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. The Pharisees are reviling Jesus because they feel he's being ridiculous. The Pharisees said this because they were lovers of money. One thing we want to note about the Pharisees, when they heard the parable about the dishonest servant, it offended them because they enjoyed the benefits of, of money. So this is one thing, just an aside. If the parable of the servant didn't offend you, you didn't read it right. The Pharisees show us what people who recognize the high value of money, how they ought to respond to that parable. If you read that parable and said, oh, what a beautiful parable, I love that servant. You're reading it wrong. When you're done reading that parable, you're supposed to be a little bit mad at Jesus because he's being an extremist, it seems like. Because Jesus is going contrary to these Pharisees and contrary to us. Hey, Jesus, that's all finding a book. Guess what? Money makes the world go round. Have you seen how the world works, Jesus? It's great for you, but that seems like a little Pollyanna, buddy. We all know how the world actually works. And that's how the Pharisees were approaching Jesus' teaching. He said, great. That's great for church, great for religion, great for tip your hat to money's bad, but whatever. I know what, what happens when I walk out the doors. I know how the world works. And that's what, precisely what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is saying, look, you justify yourselves before God, but God knows the hearts. What is exalted among men is an abomination in God's sight. So first thing here we need to recognize. What the world loves, God thinks, is rotten. The best stuff that can be gained in the world, God thinks, is not as good as we think it is. A two-year-old will have a blanket. Is two-year-old too old for that? They will take it everywhere. They will sleep in it. They will eat with it. Most of the time, part of it will be in their mouth. If they throw up, they will throw up on blanket. If they pee in the night, they will pee on blanket. In order to wash blanket, the child has to be dead asleep. The blanket has to be stolen away in the dead of night. Washed on its own, you would never wash blanket with other things, ever. It's disgusting. Then the blankie is slipped back under the child. And the child comes scurrying to you, especially if you're a grandparent, maybe you've experienced this, jumps up onto your lap and blankie hits your face and it's moist. <laughs> and you don't know, like, I don't know what the moist is. It could be food, it could be vomit, it could be urine, it could be, yeah, that too. You don't know. To this kid, this is the, 
This asset, there is nothing on planet Earth as important as this blanket. How do we know? If he doesn't have it, you're not sleeping that night. Have a good night. It's not happening. But to you, it's just nasty. It's just kind of gross. I mean, you feel good for the kid. Yeah, good for you. You got your blame. But that's just gross. There's better ways to do things here. Here's God looking at our greatest treasure, our greatest treasure that we've scraped and scrimped to gain. He's like, what are you doing? That's nasty. The, the things that we treasure, God is saying, I don't understand. The world is upside down. It has convinced us that these things matter, that what ought to happen is I should do everything I can to satisfy my soul. The world is trying to convince us that Eve wasn't wrong, except for one thing, that she only took one. That was Eve's problem. That's what the world's trying to convince us of. The, the problem wasn't that Eve sought her own satisfaction. The problem was she stopped. And that's what the world's been trying to convince us of ever since. And Jesus is, is responding to the Pharisees, trying to convince them that their hearts in seeking their own satisfaction are seeking something that the coming kingdom doesn't provide. We think that if we just have a little more, everything will be fine. And what Jesus wants us to recognize is that what we need is Jesus. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, everyone is forcing his way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. In the Old Testament kingdom, the understanding was when you're in right relationship with God by worshiping him through faith, through the worship at the tabernacle, you experience the benefits of a fruitful land. And what Jesus is saying now is the law doesn't go away, it's fulfilled. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So the law is fulfilled where? In Christ. So Jesus has fulfilled the law. So therefore, we, if we want to fulfill the law, what do we do? We join Christ by faith. Now what do we want from Jesus? The law is fulfilled, we're in Christ. So now we want the benefits of a fruitful land like the people of Israel. And Jesus is saying, it's fulfilled, it's done. The benefits of the fruitful land are in a kingdom to come. If you want the blessings of a fruitful land, a law fulfilled, then stay with Jesus, his kingdom is coming. If you only want Jesus, so you can have a little bit of more stuff here, that's not what he's for. He wants to give you something better. He doesn't want to merely give you some more treasure that's going to break here. And that's what he's calling us to do and the Pharisees to do. Seek Jesus. How do we participate with Jesus in recognizing the law is fulfilled? Again, we'll just mention it one or ten more times. It's by having a value, a high kingdom value of generosity. My stuff is Jesus' stuff. How do I Glorify Christ by benefiting those around me. Verse 18. It seems like it's off topic, but not. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Jesus here is not giving a comprehensive view of marriage and divorce. He's trying to make a point. That our appetites for stuff are no different than our appetites for relational closeness and intimacy. Our passions are the same. We have a passion and a desire for funds because money provides for the things we enjoy as well as security and significance. We also have a, a, an appetite for relational closeness and intimacy. And Jesus wants us to think about marriage the same way we think about money. Now, here we go. If I haven't offended you yet, let's get her done. Resources in this world are temporary. Do you agree? Some of you, I can tell, I'm not judging, but it looks like you've been around a couple of times. You know stuff breaks. So is marriage. So is all, so is our, so are our relationships. Uh, if you've taken that vow, you know how it goes. Do you remember how it goes? Till death do us part. Jesus makes it quite clear in the eternal state when we're enjoying the kingdom of God, you will be like the angels, neither married nor given in marriage. Marriage here is an opportunity for us to display what our God is like. What is our God like? Our God is a faithful God who keeps his covenant promises even when it hurts. 
Our marriages are primarily designed to show the world around us what God is like. By God's grace, he gives us the joy also of enjoying relational, closeness, and intimacy in those marriages. But if our marriages are only designed for our satisfaction, then you will do with your marriage what you do with a used car. Once it's no longer satisfying you with you, you will get a new one. You think I'm kidding. That's what we're doing, isn't it? Of course, that's what we're doing. And, and we're not picking on the world here. The divorce rate among believers is no different than the divorce rate among unbelievers. What happens is somewhere along the line, we decided that our marriages were designed to make us satisfied. And our marriages are designed by God for his glory to show what a covenant-keeping God is like. It doesn't mean marriage is miserable, but it means marriage is a covenant. It means marriage is a covenant where we say, I don't know what the future holds. Anybody been married longer than 10 minutes? You realize you didn't know what was coming. Anybody? Okay, we have some of the, some of the guys are trying not to laugh. Don't laugh, don't laugh, whatever you do. Yeah. When we make that covenant, we're saying, I will maintain my faithful covenant even though I don't know what next year holds, next 10 years holds, next 30 years holds. Because that's what Jesus does. He holds his covenant with us. How hard is it? Matthew chapter 19. How hard is this? See what Peter responds. The disciples said to him, if this is the case of a man and wife, it's better not to marry. That's how hard this is. Not everyone can receive this thing, but only to those who, are, who is given. So, so Jesus is, a, and you say, well, that sounds crazy. No, no, no. The world's upside down. Jesus isn't. That's the problem. We've, been, we've lived here our whole life. I, I thought my relationships were supposed to make me feel better. But right now, my marriage relationship makes me feel worse. I'm being hypothetical. And, she went to help put the lunch together, okay? It didn't storm out. Sorry, Aaron, love you. And if, if your marriage is only there to make you feel good, you'll get rid of it. And that means you will get rid of it because marriage does not always feel good. But if you want to be like your father and you want to orient upside down and right side up to the kingdom that is right side up, not to this world that is upside down, you will say, my marriage is not primarily designed for my satisfaction. It is designed to bring glory to God, to show people what covenant keeping is like. And God is so kind that within that covenant, he gives us enjoyment. And that's where Jesus is going here. With our money, with our relationships, with all those things that in our heart we have desire, we have hunger, we have appetite. He says all of those things, take them and don't think about what is satisfying today. Think like a wise investor, a prudent business person. How can I take the things of this life and convert them into permanent treasures in the kingdom to come? That's what a wise follower of God does. It says the short-term satisfactions here are at best a distraction. At worst, they're dangerous. Two or three things and then we'll close. We're stubborn. And by stubborn, I mean you and me. I will gladly admit when I'm wrong, it just hasn't happened yet. So, often we don't move towards God till we get to the end of our rope. One author put it this way, Jesus keeps his office at the end of our rope. And so we're grateful for that. If you've hit rock bottom or you hit the rock bottom, bounced up and you're heading back. By God's grace, he meets us there, right? By God's grace, he meets us there. But let me just throw this out to you who haven't hit rock bottom. Why not seek the Lord before that? I'm just throwing it out there for your consideration. Now, a lot of us are really stubborn, and we just got to blow the doors off and really ruin everything, scorched earth in our life. And finally, we say, you know what? Jesus might be onto something. And I'm just throwing this out there as a guy who's been around the sun once or twice. It's, it, it really is smart. Also, I, why don't I pursue the Lord before I hit that? Sin destroys in a couple of ways. Number one, we do stuff that's wrong, and, and the results of that sin can be tough to deal with. We're rude, we're snappy, we're angry, we're resentful, and we find our relationships start to fall apart. So that's one way that sin ruins stuff in our life. We do stuff wrong, and then the result is our life starts falling apart. There's other ways sin ruins things. 
Other people do things that are wrong and they have negative consequences on us. And the third way sin ruins things is we live in a broken world. We encounter disease and hardship. That is the reality of living in a world that's ruined by sin. By God's grace, in the hardship of the experiences of sin's brokenness in our life, God will find you there. But I might suggest, if right now you're thinking of ways of pursuing your own appetites that you know aren't right, but you've somehow justified them, why not put pause on it a little bit and say, you know what, maybe it's more wise to seek the Lord than my own satisfaction. Why not seek the Lord before we hit rock bottom? Two other mistakes we make in this upside down world. Number one, we try to fit God into our world. God doesn't fit. How do we fit God into our world? Is you try to convince yourself that the thing that you're doing that you know is wrong, God is okay with it. God is okay with you because he is nice. He is kind. He is gracious. And he is merciful. He is not okay with it. So don't try to fit God into your warped view of what's right and wrong. And by the way, he is more interested in getting that out of your life than you are, and he will do whatever it takes because he's kind. So don't try to fit God into your upside-down world. You know what's wrong. You know what's going on. Don't try to convince yourself God's cool with it. He's not cool with it. And you are going to find your life in Christ more profound, more powerful, more meaningful when you finally agree with God and say his ways are right side up, my ways are Upside down. Second way we try to fit God into our world is we try to make the world into the kingdom of God. This is really popular among American Christians today. We need to be active in the world. We need to serve. We need to give. We need to help. We need to vote. But you need to remember, listen, we can't make this place into heaven. This place will not be heaven. If you could make it into heaven, I don't want to come. You're lame at making heaven. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. So why don't we let him do that and we just live as a light in an upside down world? We can let go of this massive need I'm seeing all over the place. I'm going to leave it at this. This massive need to try to turn this world into the kingdom of God. Your kingdom, come. It's not here yet. I don't want to renovate it. I want his kingdom. It's better. This one cannot be fixed. It needs to be remade. I've read the end of the book. I know how it goes. So let's stop trying to make this world into heaven. Jesus is preparing it, and he's really good at preparing heaven. Okay, last thing. Satisfaction is a tricky thing. We hunger. uh, We want food. We want uh, drinks. We want love. We want money. We want significance. And this is a a tricky thing because none of these things are terribly wrong. I'm just going to say this, just a point of advice. I know you're not here for advice, but here we go. Keep an eye on your appetites. Just pay attention to the things that you really want. Now, most of those things, our appetites God has given us, they were designed to make us seek Him. You know, we're designed to hunger for food that we grab food and go, man, it's delicious food. God, you are good at making food. That was the idea. But what we do, this is delicious food. Good, because now we don't need that guy. That's what we do. So, so an idea here is looking at uh, these, pa- keep an eye on your appetites. They're deceptive. Satisfying our appetites come at, comes at an extremely high cost, and the cost-benefit is not good. It's just not. Satis- having a life that's bent towards our own satisfaction It never lasts. As soon as you have something you want, you want something different, it it always fades. The better way to view it is to see the things that God gives as a delight. Our, Our families, our homes, our community, our church relationships. It is much better to view these things as blessings from God who is who is so kind. And instead of reflecting on the thing, reflecting on God who would provide such a fantastic and blessed. Life. That is the way in which we enjoy God as an act of worship, where we recognize true satisfaction comes from God alone. There's a, a habit in the Bible, it's called fasting. Have you heard of this? Yeah, I didn't think many of you had. Um, that's terrible. I'm in trouble today, aren't I? Bad. What is fasting? Let me put it simply. 
I have something I enjoy, an appetite, nothing wrong with it. But I know I enjoy it to such a degree that when I have the thing, whatever it is, leisure, vacation, car, house, food, drink, whatever it might be, when I have the thing, I, I find I don't care about God. All fasting does is say, if I can have this enjoyable thing but not have God, I'll take God. That's all fasting is. It's just a habit of saying, you know what? I don't need this thing. I can have it. There's nothing wrong with it. But as an act of worship, I will say no to this thing as a way of communicating to my father. You know what? If I have you, I don't care if I ever have that thing. That's all fasting is. It's a way of voluntarily saying to God, you know what? My enjoyment here is too much. I want my enjoyment to be rooted in you. And if I'm going to enjoy that thing, I want it to be as an expression of worship of God who will give something so kind. Life today in the kingdom to come. Number one, plan for your future. Think. Plan. Don't be short-term. Don't merely think about when you're 90. It's too short-term. It's too close in. That's not, you're not thinking far enough out. Think about what, where you're going to be a thousand years from now. Think that far out. Plan for your future. What does it mean to live now to ensure future benefit? Finally, the world is upside down, and we need to keep a close eye on our appetites. God, we thank you for the graciousness you've shown us in Jesus. We thank you that we can be a part of the kingdom of God, Jesus, because you came and died for sinners like us. God, we have to admit, though, Lord, this world is all we've ever known. And it is difficult to look into a future that's unknown and hard to understand. And think about setting aside things here that matter so much. And I pray, Lord, you would just open our hearts to what does it mean to, to live wisely. To invest our greatest efforts, our greatest investments, our greatest dedication and closeness into a future that we don't fully know. But we know is permanent because you are faithful. And God, I know there are some of us here today in a, in a room this size where we have found ourselves caught up in satisfying appetites and we don't see an exit plan. We're trapped. And I pray for those of us in those situations, Lord, you would give us the boldness to ask somebody for help. God, give us the privilege of turning to you for worship in the blessings you have given us instead of worshiping the things you have given we thank you that you are so kind. You have given us so much. You have given us not merely life, but life that is enjoyable. And God, we pray that we would always be grateful and thankful for that. Make us more like Jesus even today. It's in his name we pray. Amen.